Testament. So if you flip, you know, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right? Deuteronomy. Keep going. Uh, there's a woman named Ruth, kind of right past her. We're going to be um, in 1 Samuel. So that's what we're going to be this morning. We'll be taking a look at that. Um, and this is uh, the story um, really about uh, the nation of Israel really being in just a super difficult situation. They had like no leadership. It was bad. Um, and they were just kind of all over the map. And for like almost 400 years, it would just be like, well, if a good leader kind of rose up, they're kind of headed in a good direction. But then it seemed like for every good leader, 10 bad ones would kind of show up and then they'd like just be in a mess and be in trouble. And then a good one might pop up again. And so they just kind of had this unfortunate cycle and it really got them into a lot of bad habits. And they really, quote, you know, they really needed like, quote unquote, a savior to really help them. I mean, they really did. They were just a mess. Um, and when it carries on for that long, it's kind of hard to break that. I mean, you could probably relate in your own life to where if you let some things in your life, some bad habits and some difficult things, and you really only deal with it one out of 20, one out of 50 times, once a year, the New Year's resolution, and then you don't touch it again, you know, it's still there. You know, those thorns are there. They stick with you. And chances are they're probably going to grow a little bit because we never gave it the needed time and attention. And so the nation of Israel at this point um, is really at that place. And so the question is, you know, what's going to happen with them? How's God going to provide? How's he going to work? Um, and it kind of happens in an unlikely way. So we'll pick up um, 1 Samuel. So in verse 1. It says that um, there is a certain man from Ramatham, right? Some of these towns, right, you've never heard of. A Zephite, which of course you know what that is, right? It's like a mosquito bite. Um, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. So there, there's one solid name that we want to know. There is this guy, his name was Elkanah. And he was a son of a couple of guys. And we pick up in verse 2. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Penina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. You can already see where there's going to be like some issues and some problems. It says, Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Right? So they would regularly go up to this place, Shiloh, sort of like their church, kind of. But the way it worked for them is they just had one big central meeting area at this place, Shiloh, and that's where they would worship. And so uh, they were pretty religious. They would go up there um, and they would sacrifice. And these two sons of the priest would be there. And it says, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, uh, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed the, her womb. Um, sorry, and because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Can you imagine this? This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Awful. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Really compassionate guy, really has a clue here. Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Do I mean more to you than ten sons? And we'll kind of pause there. And so maybe we can come back with the slides that we need. No, maybe not. Guess not. So, here we are at this point. Okay, and you can see where the division, there's like just transition. Right, the title of the message is like the journey of motherhood. 
Okay, so the journey of motherhood, that's probably not really the greatest title. It's more like transitions because moms, right, and dads, but today we're talking about moms. Moms, there's just so many transitions, so many things in life like we have to deal with, uh, that you have to deal with, I'm not a mom, right, but that you have to deal with, right, that are difficult, that take you all over the map and depending upon where you are in life, um, that's difficult stuff if you have just, you know, little ones or if they're a little bit older or if they've maybe been around for a while. I mean, that's going to take you and pull you in different directions. And what we want to do is we want to be, you know, equipped as Christian women to try and do it the right way and try and help and be there for our families. And so, unfortunately, many times in families, division is almost like a natural part. It really stinks. It's really unfortunate. But it's there, you know? It's really difficult. And so in our story, and it's not just a story, we believe it actually happened, right? There was actually two wives. You had this guy Elkanah, and then you had Hannah and Peniah. So this guy had two wives. Now what is the deal with that? How is that working out? Well, unfortunately, you know, kind of in the law, we've talked about that law thing a lot. In the law, there was a provision for a man to have two wives. As long as he loved her, them, he had to treat them a certain way. But that really wasn't the ideal. It really wasn't. And the reason why we know that is because when uh, Jesus was talking about divorce and marriage, and he was confronted about uh, marriage and divorce by the religious leaders, they said, hey, you know, is it, is it okay, you know, for a man to divorce, you know, his wife, you know, uh, give him that certificate for any reason. And Jesus kind of, you know, didn't really answer it directly, but he took care of the issue, at least of polygamy, where he said, listen, it should be like it was in the beginning. You know, they should, one husband, you know, one male, one female, they're going to leave their parents and they're going to cleave to each other. Right? They will leave and then they will cleave to each other. Right? That just happens, you know, with two people. And then that's it. And so if you, you know, ever see a show, you guys ever see the show like Sister Wives? Or maybe have heard of it, right? Sister Wives is a show. Um, yeah, maybe you've seen it. Um, <laughs> Julie is very intrigued by it. Um, you've seen a show. So it's basically these fundamental uh, Mormon families. And so fundamentalist Mormons believe uh, polygamy is okay. And so, you, you know, you get to meet these families. It's like a documentary sort of slash reality thing. Um, and so, uh, you see this, and you see, you know, six or seven wives, you know, with one guy. And it's just, it's chaos is what it is. It's total craziness. And then, like, you know, maybe he'll go court, like, you know, another woman, and then, you know, bring her in. But then you just see all these dynamics and weird things about who's working and who's watching the kids today. And sometimes there's different houses. It's just, it's nuts. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that it really takes a lifetime to really learn and appreciate one woman. I mean, it really does. And to learn and appreciate one man takes like one meal. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. You, know, you can't throw him under the bus. It's not true. But, yeah, it is a boo. I hope Father's Day will, will come back. But... Right, but I mean that's really the case, and and you know unfortunately women for such a long time have had such a bad rap and just viewed as property, and it's just not a right thing. And so here is Hannah and Penina, one husband, and to make things worse, um, one can have children, one can't, and it's probably um, Hannah who probably married Elkanah first. It's probably his first wife, and then when he found out. 
um, that she couldn't have any children because children was like um, that was a real blessing from the Lord you know to be able to have children and so you know when they found out she couldn't have any children uh, he probably went out you know and married Penina and so you can only imagine how she feels and what's going on on the inside of her I mean they would go up to worship you had the other wife the rival just irritating her poking her just really killing her on the inside. I mean, you think of a place or a time in your life where it's just like totally distressed and have such anxiety, like she's at that place. In fact, she was so much at that place to where when she was there and she was at the house of the Lord, supposed to be worship time with the family and supposed to be enjoying it and praising God. For her, it was like a nightmare because of this woman just ruining for her and says that she wept and she wouldn't even eat. She didn't really want to take part in it. And the husband's like, well, here's more meat. You know, <laughs> Okay, I guess that's sort of a nice gesture, but you're kind of missing the point. And we don't know a lot of the family dynamics. Like, you know, did she ever, like, confront Penina? Or did they have, like, you know, a family meeting? And did they talk about stuff? And how did it all work out? I mean, if they did do that stuff, it didn't seem really successful. Because this is the way, like, their worship times went down. It was supposed to be a really wonderful time of the year. So here's the first transition, right? They're having division within the family. And I think many mothers can certainly relate to that. Division happening and occurring within the family to a point where this issue, this thing, brings you to just tears. And I think a lot of moms can definitely relate to that. Whatever problem, issue within the family just brings you to tears and you get to that point where you're like before God in tears of like, God, what are we going to do? You know, that's the place where she's at. So what happens? So verse 9. It says, Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And she kept on praying to the Lord. Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. How long will you keep on getting drunk and get rid of your wine? Real class act, this guy, huh? So verse 15, she says, Not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And verse 18, she said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Right? And so we'll pause there for a second. And so what does she do when this division, when this trouble comes? She takes it to the right place. Sometimes that is like the most difficult thing to do in the world, which is just bring it to the right place. And the right place, of course, being God and our Heavenly Father. That's exactly where He wants it. He wants it in His lap. Right? He tells us that 
His burden is supposed to be light. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burden, I'll give you rest. That's what he says. Um, but sometimes we like to hold on to it, you know, and try and deal with it and try and fix it and do stuff. And it's almost like what we talked about last week with the hot potato thing, where it's just we're supposed to just pass it off to him. Just pass it off to him. And that's where she goes with this great anguish and this distress. And what she is, is she's praying right to God. Not even words coming out. You just see her mouth going, you know. And then the priest guy's looking over at her. He's like, man, this girl's drunk out of her mind. Like, what? She's even trying to fake pray. You know, instead of, and, and then instead of, like, clarifying and asking, you know, is everything all right? She probably looks like a mess. She's been crying the whole time. She's probably looking unstable at best. You know, he just comes on over to her and just accuses her of drinking. What a clown. Like, really, you know? The, the priest in the temple. Um, but she was able to, at least it seems like, very politely kind of set the record straight and tell, her, uh, tell him her problems. And then he actually says, go in peace, you know, and may God actually, you know, bless what you're asking of him. And it's interesting though, what she prays for and what she asks. And she says, God, you know what? Help ease some of this. By asking for the impossible, she asked for a son. Who knows how long she was bearing for? We don't really know. But she goes forth and she just asks right for the impossible. Sometimes that's also very difficult to do, just to come right out and just kind of ask for the impossible. You think God doesn't care, he doesn't, he's got more important things to do, or he would never really even do it. I mean, if we come here on Easter, right, and we're celebrating and Jesus lives and resurrection, right, if he really did rise again, right, we shouldn't have much of an issue bringing some things before him that seem relatively impossible to us. At least it should be on the table, right? At least we could at least present it to him. And if it's part of his plans, awesome. We'll put it there and we'll open the door for him to work. But if we never even put that stuff on the table and just write him off to begin with, and we're like, well, I don't know. He probably doesn't really care. And I've asked about stuff before and nothing really happened, so whatever. That's way too easy to do. You know, and that's not the mark of a Christian that God is really looking for. He's asking for us to ask, to seek, and to knock, and to persevere, and then keep going. And that's what she's trying to do here. And what she asked for is just a son. And she says, you know what, God? If you do give me that son, I'm not even going to be growing up in the same house with him. I'm going to give him right back over to you. That's heavy-duty stuff. I mean, that's like, you know, Isaac and his son, where they've been praying, you know, his whole life for him to be born. And they finally get him, and then God says, go sacrifice him on a hill to me? Like, what? I'll tell you what, that makes no logical sense at all. And if a loving God would do that, like, what is that? And if I was Isaac, I'd be like, yeah, what is that? I am not going to go do that. We'll figure something else out, right? I don't know, I would personally do that. That's kind of, you know... It's not real proud to say that, but that's probably what I would do, unfortunately. And his reaction was, you know what? Well, we'll go up on the hill and we'll get up there. And then when his son asks, he says, hey, dad, we got all this stuff like for a sacrifice. Like, where's the thing we're going to sacrifice? And his dad is like, well, I don't know. God's going to provide something. And so like, he actually believed that God was going to provide some other way for that sacrifice other than his son. Like, it's just incredible, that mindset. And so God is asking us to have that mindset. And he will give us that mindset if we open up the doors to him through prayer. 
And so that's what she's doing. She's saying, God, if you give me that son, I'm going to dedicate him to you for the rest of his life. And then it says something interesting, right? And no razor will ever be used on his head. And, and so that really means that um, he was going to have like a Nazarite vow and, and so that was like a special vow and somebody took a Nazarite vow so if you know, me and Julia were going to um, take a Nazarite vow for a little baby Jiren and we're going to say okay Nazarite so we would not you know, shave his head and he couldn't come near any grape juice any wine, any fermented drink anything like that and that's kind of what got Samson into trouble he was another guy that took a Nazarite vow you know um, and so that's what she was doing with him. She was going to take a Nazarite vow and say, you know what, God? It's all yours. So God would bless her with it, and then she'd just like go and give it right back. So let's see what happens. Verse 19, it says, Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with uh, Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, saying, uh, she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. And Samuel means, right, he heard me, or he heard us, or he heard. And so that's what she named him. She said, man, I cried out to him, and he actually heard me. And he didn't even just hear, he actually delivered, which is phenomenal. And so what happens, verse 21. It says, when the man... Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow. Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. And so she says, You know what? I'm not really going to go up. He's still a little guy, and he's still nursing, and I've got to take care of him, and so that's uh, what I'm going to do. And Elkanah says, Do what seems best to you. Stay here until you have weaned him, only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And he, oh, I'll come back to that in a minute. And so verse 24 says, After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli and said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will worship. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. So pretty interesting stuff. So what happens is she actually conceives, has a child. It's time for them to go back up to their central place of worship, annual, once a year. They go there. Big deal. Um, or probably something almost similar to like Muslims going to Mecca, but like different, right? I don't want to mess you up because it's a weird comparison, but it's similar to where they would all come there and they would worship. It was a big deal. She said, no, you know, I'm going to stay home. And the husband's like, well, okay, you know, but hey, listen, just make sure, you know, you made that vow to the Lord. Um, so make sure that when it's time, you know, we, we go bring him to the Lord. And if you put yourself in Hannah's place, you got to think, Man, this is awesome. This is like better than I imagined. I'm here with my son. We're growing up together. I'm learning about him. He's taking his steps. You know, he's talking. He's doing these things. Don't you think that maybe there might be like a little voice inside that says, this is awesome. Maybe we should like put that off for a while. Like let's dedicate him to the Lord when he's like 80. Right? You could do that, right? So why don't we try that? You know, or... 
you know, in some way, it must have been somehow tempting for her to be like, this is the gift you were asking for. You know, you got brought to that place where you just had no other options and you came to God and you gave everything you had to God and he blessed you with this. And now it's like he's asking for it back. Like, what's the deal with that? We'll get to that in a minute. And she, is she going to follow through and do it? And the husband's like, listen, you probably should follow through on that. And sure enough, they go up there. Uh, she does, and she brings it to the very priest, right, that accused her of, of, uh, of being drunk, but it sounds like he's probably a good guy, just not really a great communicator, maybe. Um, and so they get up there, and what happens after, uh, in chapter 2, which we won't read today, but it goes into this whole prayer of she just rejoices and thanks God so much for what had happened and how he had blessed her. And you got to imagine the relationship between her uh, and Penina probably changed dramatically. And if the story ended there, like that would be pretty awesome, you know? But I think one question we certainly got to think about, and I think that a lot of people think about, especially cynics, that like, well, what is it? There goes God again, right? Giving you something, taking it away, trying to make your life miserable. Well, that's not entirely the whole story. Because what happens later on in the end, she ends up having five more kids. Right? She has three boys, two girls. Life has changed completely. And it doesn't even stop there. This guy that's born Samuel ends up really, in a sense, saving the nation of Israel and transforming the entire thing. And then anoints King David who just puts them on a map and puts Israel in a place that like, has never been seen ever again. Incredible. Because of a mom, because of a mother, being brought to a place, I mean, irritated is like such an understatement, but it says that she was so irritated by her wife, um, but, bring, but bring, uh, brought to such a place where she just had no other choices, nothing else. And she responded in the right way. That's so often the challenge, is just to respond in the right way. The best way, not a perfect way, but the right way. Look what happens outside of that. I mean, it's incredible. It's a true biblical mom that like goes through the difficulties, goes through the storms, doing the best that she can. And I got to think when she was, you know, sitting there crying and weeping, it probably only seemed to be getting worse that things actually change. And so, a mom like that, a Christian mother like that, I think models some unbelievable things. You know, she models. I think really two things, and I don't know if they'll really come up. Um, but one of them that she modeled, which I thought was tremendous, was asking for the impossible, right? Um, and the second thing I thought that she modeled uh, really well was having the ability to take whatever came her way and almost reflect it like right back to God and put it in his lap into the right place. I mean, she did a lot of other things really well, I'm sure. But those are just two things that really stuck out to me. And as you read it, and as you take a look at it, and as you think about a woman like that, there probably be other things. But those are some things that I thought th- certainly stuck out to me.